Mike, go ahead and uh, put that first slide up there, that picture of Mega Wedgie. That's the name of this ride at uh, Hurricane Harbor, Mega Wedgie. And uh, just uh, use your imagination. Now, um, this is a two-person ride, and, and if you can see how steep it is way up there at the top, you walk up all those steps, you get to the top, and you can see that kind of thing right about the middle of the rail up there. That's a safety harness for the lifeguard who's up there because it's so steep when when he or she goes to push you over the edge, they don't want to fall over the edge. And because this is a tube ride, I'm sure that it would be quite exhilarating uh, if you went down it without a tube. So they have this big harness and and they're holding on to you and... and, uh, so what they, what they do, you know, at, at Hurricane Harbor, there's always a rule when you're in a two-person ride, and, and usually the rule is the heavier person goes in front. For some reason, on this ride, the heavier person goes in back. So we'd never ridden it before. I had never ridden it before. And so Caleb and I partner up, and, and my girls partnered up, and uh, so they went, and we laughed as they went over. Well, Caleb and I get in there, and I'm the heavier of the two, so I'm in the back seat, and you're facing one another. And it's kind of got a backrest there, and I guess that's to prevent from whiplash or something like that because I've never seen a tube quite like this. It's almost like a recliner. And so we get in there, and the girl goes to push us. You go, y'all ready? And we're like, yeah, we're ready. Somehow when she pushes us over the edge, my backside becomes dislodged from my side of the inner tube. Caleb is falling down backwards, and I'm going like this on the inner tube coming towards him. His eyes get huge, and, and like he was really concerned and actually i was too and there for a split second my stomach went holy cow you know and came all the way up in my eyeballs and i'm coming over like this and we go down and we shoot all the way up the other side and i'm not kidding he could have reached out and touched that rail on the other side i'm glad the rail was there because for a split second i thought we were launching off of that thing and we we started laughing then after that it's no fun after that the first hill and that that was great fun it was awesome we come down i'm going dude your eyes and he's going i thought you were going to kill me and i thought me too and we're just talking all real loud and there's another lifeguard down at the bottom sitting there where you come out and she is laughing at us we just had the best time and i was thinking what a ride that's a great ride What I want to do, though, is just keep doing the first hill over and over because I love it when your stomach comes up in your eyeballs. I love that feeling, just being on the edge there. So until somebody invents a ride where you can keep doing it over and over, I'll just have to keep doing this one hill. And and I'll tell you that it's a ride. Now, you can see in the background my kids that, that, uh, what's it called, Blue Niagara, the one you do the mats, that was their favorite, not that twisty tube. They hated that one because it tears you up. Anyway, what a ride. It was a blast for about two and a half seconds. And actually, the, 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 one, the point five seconds that I was out of control, I kind of liked it. You know, I'm kind of weird that way. It was fun. And so we just had a great time. Now, some of you here today, you don't know much about God. So let me just say this. Following Christ, doing life God's way is not a drag. It's not boring. Now, some Christians are, got to tell the truth, but following Christ is more like, what a ride. And see, when you study the life of Christ, you find out that when he walked the earth, he did all kinds of incredible things, and then he claimed, the reason the religious leaders got so mad, he claimed to be God. And he said, I am God's son, 
I'm going to die on a cross, but I'm going to rise from the dead to prove to you that I am God's son. And then he did all of those things. And it was a crazy, crazy ride. Now, you've got to understand that his followers, when he was crucified, his followers thought, that's it, Christianity's done. We can do nothing else. Let's just go hide because nobody likes us and we may die like the founder of our religion. But once he rose from the dead, all of his believers started going, wow, this dude is God. This is a great life and we will spend the rest of our lives and even give our lives for this cause of Christ. And they said, what a ride. Acts, the book of Acts that we've been studying is the story of their ride through the early church. Now, the early church, we talked about this, had began to grow all over the place. And you got to realize they didn't have any of the advantages that we have today. They couldn't have property. It was illegal for Christians to have property because they were not a recognized religion at that time. They didn't have air conditioning. They, uh, they didn't have uh, offerings and things like that like we do. They met in homes. And, and they, at the early church, they would sell their possessions to, to try to help people who were poor and, and couldn't afford to learn more about this incredible way. And so the church took off because these people, they saw Jesus walk again after he'd been crucified. They all knew he was dead. He'd been pronounced dead. He was laid in a tomb. He comes back three days later and it changed them. And they decided that this was such a big deal that they would spend the rest of their lives telling other people about Jesus. And, and so they had this concern for lost people. And, and that's what we're talking about today. Lost people matter. The first week we looked in, in Acts, we found out that the, the very first church was focused on Jesus. And that's where they drew their power from. The, the second week uh, we talked about that, that a Christ-centered church or church the way it should be is uh, selfless, meaning that, that we look out for the interests of others. And today we're going to talk about lost people matter. Because you know the Bible tells us that anyone who does not know Jesus is lost. And you see, Christians, people weren't called Christians until the 8th or ninth chapter of Acts. If you're reading through the book, you've come across it, and it says they were first called Christian at Antioch. Before that time, they were called followers of the way. And this was because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so if you were a follower of Jesus, early on you weren't a Christian, you were part of the way. You were followers of the way. So it stands to reason, if Jesus is the only way and you're not following him, the Bible describes you as lost. And the early church was concerned for lost people. Now, I want you just to glance around and find the closest empty chair near you. And I want you to think about somebody you know who desperately needs to be in that chair. We ought to be thinking about people who face a Christless eternity in a place called hell. Most of America believes in God. Most of America believes in heaven. But a lot of America doesn't believe in hell. Do you know the same source for both of of those concepts is Jesus Christ? Jesus taught there is a heaven. He taught there is a hell. So if he's right on one of them, he's probably right on the other one. And I find it unacceptable that anyone doesn't know that there is a hell, and if they don't follow Christ, if they don't become a, a follower of the way, they face a Christless eternity in a place called hell. When you walk in here, I never want this church to become a place that says, oh, somebody's sitting in my seat. Because it's not your seat. I don't care how much you gave to the church. It's not your seat. It belongs to God. And if you ever get to the point that you don't care about lost people, let's just be real honest. You don't care about God and you don't care about the church, so you probably should take your butt somewhere else because we are going to focus on people who are lost. 
Can I be any clearer about that? Thank you. I think I will. Thank you. Help myself. Now, what, what makes me want to vomit, and I look back, I've been in ministry 27 years now, 19 years as a youth minister. What makes me want to vomit is when a church becomes inward focused. And you get these clicks, and they're the only ones that matter. And I look back and I see that my whole time in ministry, I didn't know this till just a few years ago, actually before we started this church and when God started showing me this, that I have always looked out for people that no one else looked out for. I have always been drawn to folks who are real and who are hurting. And I just feel this need to reach out to them, defend them, and be a part of their lives. And so it just stands to reason that if I'm going to be involved in a church, that's what our church should look like. Fair enough? I want to be real clear on that. The early church didn't have time to whine. They didn't have time to say, it's about me. The early church was focused on people who did not know God. And, and that's what we call evangelism. There's a Christian term called evangelism. Let me just define it for you. All it means is telling people about the good news of Jesus. If you had the cure to cancer, would that be good news? There are folks in our midst who are suffering through cancer right now. There are folks, extended family members, that are suffering through cancer treatments right now. If you had the answer to cancer and you didn't share that, you deserve hell. Well, according to the Bible, God gave us the cure to spiritual cancer, which is sin. And it's Jesus Christ. And it's a shame that we should not share the good news. All it is is saying, Jesus Christ was real. He walked on the earth. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and He was raised from the dead so that if you'll follow Him, you can be raised from the dead too. That's good news. And we can live forever in heaven. Well, let's check in on Tommy. You know, last week we talked to Tommy the uh, giver. Today we're going to see how Tommy, how he's doing as Tommy the Evangelizer. Check this out. Honestly, I came because of, <laughs> Woo, that was good, uh, church on Sunday. I've been uh, been thinking about what's been talked about with evangelism, and honestly, I you're the guy that I felt like had the best grasp of how to do it. I thought maybe I'd come by and talk to you about it. Well, I, I don't know about that, but but I try. Okay, so, so tell me, where are you in the process? Well... Really, I'm, I'm just having a hard time talking to people. Well, practice is the key. Are you practicing? 
Well, my cat's received Christ three times already. He's, uh, he's not handling the baptism part too well, but he can speak in tones. Are you talking to any people? Well, that's kind of the thing. I'm kind of a fraidy cat. You are an idiot. Tommy needs some help, doesn't he? Yeah, let's pray for Tommy. Now, no matter uh, where you are on your spiritual journey, because we have some folks here who aren't even convinced in this God thing. We have some folks who've been Christians a long time. No matter where you are on your journey, you need to understand this. No one with any rational amount of intelligence denies that Jesus Christ walked on the earth. What people will argue about is whether he is who he says he was. It's real clear he claimed to be God. A lot of people are uncomfortable with that because that makes him in charge if he is God. And so people will argue about whether he's really God or not. They'll even argue, they won't even argue whether he was in the tomb or not because his followers agreed he's not in the tomb. His enemies, the Jewish religious police, agreed he's not in the tomb. Even the Romans agreed he's not in the tomb. Nobody, nobody denies that the empty tomb is there that used to be Jesus' grave. What they'll try to come up with is alternate explanations of why he's not in the tomb. Well, the most real explanation, according to 500 eyewitnesses, is Jesus Christ rose from the dead, never to die again. Now, I asked you a couple of uh, weeks ago to start reading Acts, and if you began reading, you, you understand where we are kind of in this whole journey, and it's not too late to do that. You can start reading that if you want to. Now, you remember in chapter 2, that was the birth of the first church. They weren't called Christians yet, but that was the birth of the first church when the Holy Spirit came. Peter preaches this sermon and, and 3,000 people accept Christ. They were 120, 3,000 accept Christ, and they were baptized that day. Now, I did the math on this. If all 120 people that were Christ followers baptized, they each got to baptize 25 people. If it was just the 12 apostles, you know, the closest ones to Jesus, they baptized 250 people each. What a ride. What a service. I want to see that. You'd be tired. I'd love to be tired dunking people out of our horse trough. That would be awesome. What an incredible ride. Then a couple of chapters later, uh, Peter heals a guy that was born lame. We talked about this last week. And he gets in trouble because he heals a lame man. And they said, why did you do this? How did you do this? And so he preaches another sermon. And 2,000 more people become followers of Christ. 5,000 from 120 to 5,000 in just a matter of a few days. What an incredible ride. Then you get to chapter 7. Chapter 7, they've just appointed some deacons, the very first deacon. This is back when deacon was a good term. Okay, just leaving it there. If you don't know what that is, ask somebody later, what's a deacon? It's almost got a... Well, it definitely has a bad connotation nowadays. It's not supposed to. But he was one of the first deacons. He was full of faith, full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit. He preaches almost the same sermon 
that Peter had twice. Peter preaches twice. 5,000 people get saved. Stephen preaches. You know what happens? They drag him outside the city walls. They take a bunch of rocks and they stone him to death. What was his crime? He dared to tell them the good news about Jesus. He said, Jesus was dead. You killed him. But God raised him up. He's the Messiah that we've been looking for. And people took his life. He dared to share the good news and it cost him his life. Now, we're to chapter 8 and I want you to see what happens in chapter 8. Here's verse 1. And Saul approved of this murder. That's big. Remember Saul. That very day, the church in Jerusalem began to suffer what? Cruel persecution. Not just persecution, cruel persecution. All the believers except the apostles, that's the original 12, were scattered throughout the provinces of Judea and Samaria. It was so bad being a Christ follower that everyone except the original 12 runs away from Jerusalem and are scattered all over the known countryside. Skip down to verse 3. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. He went from house to house, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Saul did not want the news about Jesus to get out. He did not want this good news to get out that Jesus was dead and that now he was alive. Because if the message got out, it would destroy the national Jewish system. It would destroy their religious system. And so he was going to do everything he could to try to keep that word from getting out. And there were people who ran around with authority from the, the Jewish religious leaders to take people and put them in prison and to kill some. They thought they were defending God by imprisoning Christians and killing some Christians. They're defending God. 5,000 people were chased out of Jerusalem and, and they thought, whoa, whew, we breathe a sigh of relief now. All this, we can't have a first mega church here in Jerusalem. Let's get rid of all of these believers. They thought, oh, now, now it's good. 5,000 people left Jerusalem and look what they did in verse 4. But the believers who were scattered preached the good news about Jesus wherever they went. No matter how badly you treated them, you couldn't get them to stop talking about Jesus Christ. It, this persecution actually spread, sped up the spread of Christianity in the known world. They told everyone. And you know, being a Christian here in the United States is not at all difficult. I'm reading a book uh, uh, about a guy who was in China and doing a lot of teaching in China. They had to sneak the dude in at night so that no one sus would suspect that they were having a Bible study. All of the Chinese people would come in at various times. They would synchronize their watches, come in at various times so that no one would be killed for trying to learn about Jesus Christ. Some of you have three or four Bibles laying around your house that you may or may not ever touch or read. If they possess that Bible in China, they could die for it. It is much too easy to be a Christian in America. And I think that's why we have such cheap, shallow faith in America because it costs us nothing. But these early Christians, they didn't have time to whine. They didn't have time to look around. They said, we've got to spend all of our time spreading the good news that we have the cure to spiritual cancer and everybody everywhere needs to know it. And that's what we've lost in the American church is this desire to tell other people how they can go to heaven instead of hell. Oh, my religion is, is very private. Tell that to Jesus who died a very public death, so that you might be adopted. He, he never, yes, it's personal, but he never intended for your faith to be private. So how do we turn up the evangelistic heat? How do we become more like the first church? How do we get back this love for people who are lost? Well, a couple of things. Number one, look for opportunities to share God's story. How many of you 
here would feel comfortable sharing God's story right now. If, if somebody walked up, you could tell the basics of God's story. Let me see your hands. Okay, several. Wow. Wow, several of you. Cool. That's awesome. The rest of you, here's what you need to know. You only need to know two words to tell God's story. Believe and belong. The belief part is you believe Jesus Christ walked on the earth, died on the cross, a sinless death to purchase us uh, from our sins. And that if you follow him, if you believe that and ask him to come into your life, then you belong to his family. You become part of your physical family by your physical birth. You have no choice in that matter. You become a part of God's spiritual family. It is your choice and your choice alone. Not your mama's, your daddy's, your grandmother's, or your friends, or your uncle's, or your neighbor's. It is your choice whether you're a part of God's spiritual family. But I've got a bigger question for those of you who are already believers and already belongers. Do you live God's story? Is God's story such a part of your life that it makes a difference. I know a lot of people who live for Christ on Sundays and they live like hell the rest of the week and they wonder why there's no power of God in their life. They wonder why God doesn't use them. And God might even say to some of them, I don't know who you are because you're living a dual life. And people look at your life and they say, why should I be a Christian? Because I'm just the same as you are. I don't have to go to church to act like that. I'm pretty good at that by myself. I'm a moral person compared to you. We ought to be so concerned about our friends who are not here today. If you don't tell them and show them the message of Jesus, who's going to? If you want to develop a heart for the lost, then number one, you look for opportunities to share God's story. But number two, look for opportunities to share your story. If you're a Christian, you have given your life to Christ. You have a story. And some of you are going, I don't have a very good story because I grew up in church. And you think your story is, isn't good because you didn't do heroin when you were six and, and you didn't get an abortion when you were seven. You, you weren't a street prostitute at eight. And, and you didn't have a meth uh, uh, laboratory in your locker when you were nine. And you didn't win the lottery and blow all of your money on drugs and prostitution when you were ten. And then at 10, somebody invited you to Jesus and woo, what a story came to... That's not you, right? And some of you think, if I don't have a story like that, I don't have a very good story. But, but I want you to know that if, if you've been a believer from the time you grew up, you have a great story. You don't have all the crap that a lot of other people have in their lives. Praise God. The amount of crap you have does not determine whether the story is good or not. In Acts 22, Paul tells his story. And I want you to read that on your own, but let's just look at verse 1. Paul stands up in front of all the religious leaders, all these Jewish leaders, and he says, My friends and leaders of our nation, listen as I explain what happened. What he's saying is, listen to me as I tell you what I used to be and what I am now because of a man named Jesus Christ. And if you go back to when I told you to remember the name Saul at the first part of Acts chapter 8, he was the guy that was right there approving of Stephen being killed. He ran around throwing people in jail. Saul was his Jewish name. God comes to him and calls him into uh, ministry. And he says, you're going to go to the Gentiles and tell them the good news of Jesus. So we're going to start using your Gentile name, which was Paul. Same person. And, and radical things happened in his life. In his story, what happened was basically he's walking down the road and God's glory and his power shows up in such a way that it blinds him. 
I mean, it says there's a light. He's going to Damascus trying to arrest people who are followers of the way. He's going to Damascus. God blinds him, knocks him down on his, on his face. And, and he says, whoa, who are you? And, he, and, and God says, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he says, who are you? And he says, I'm Jesus Christ of Nazareth. And he saw the risen Lord. And basically the Lord said, okay, I want you to go to this town and I want you to spend some time there and I want you to pray and I want you to wash your face and just wait. And then God's going to do something great. Well, that was Paul's story. That's a pretty awesome story, huh? I don't have a story like that. I don't have a God showing up in power and glory and knocking me to my face when I was six. I grew up in the church. We were there twice on Sundays and once on Wednesday. I remember the little Fellowship Baptist Church in Borger, Texas. It's The building's still there. And I remember going in, and, and I remember they had at the back, they had a nursery on the second floor. You know, so it's where a lot of balconies would be nowadays in churches. But there was a nursery with huge windows up there so that the nursery workers could could see the service. And then there were speakers on the wall. And so I, man, from the time I was a baby, I was hearing the stories. I grew up in the church. I heard all the stories in, in Sunday school. And one time, um, one of my teachers talked about a Shetland pony. And, and I had kind of trouble saying that. And I came home and my brothers thought I was cussing. And, and I was like, that, I'm just telling you what the Sunday school teacher said. And they said, that's not what the Sunday school teacher said. I was there from the moment that I could remember and sitting in in church on a sunday night at six years old sitting next to my oldest brother i felt like god say if you were to die tonight you would go to hell and and i wasn't all it didn't scare me into the kingdom of god didn't scare the hell out of me i just sat there and went i'm a sinner because i know what sin is and i talked on my brother's shirt and i said hey would you go with me? And I, I walked down the aisle because that's what you do in a Baptist church. And I stood there and I prayed and I asked God to come into my life. That's my story. What makes the story incredible is Jesus comes to cure another dying sinner of spiritual cancer. Anytime someone says to me, man, you should hear my testimony, red flags, warning bells go off. Because what makes your story great is not your own sin and your stupidity. What makes your story great is that Jesus had compassion in the midst of your stupidity to save another lost sinner from hell. That's what makes the story great. And by the way, don't go looking for your walking down the street at Damascus bright light experience that happened to Paul. It happened one time. It was unique. And your story is just as unique. Somewhere you have a story and what makes it great is Jesus, not how stupid you were. Right? Now, you, you share God's story, you share your story, but here's something else. Before you ever get a chance to share any of those things, you need to listen to their stories, not even on there. Even non-Christians have a story about why they don't go to church. Ask them and listen. I've said for three weeks now in this series, most of the reasons you get from people why they don't go to church, why they hate church, I hate them just as bad. Those things about church. It's why we try to do church differently. It's why we like to laugh. Because we don't want to get so uptight. We like to laugh around here. We have a good time around here. We get serious and talk about Jesus. But we like to laugh. I like music with a beat. On two and four. But if you'll clap at all, I'm happy. Even if you clap the wrong one, I'll try to correct you, but I'll, I'll still be happy. You see, if, if you look for opportunities, if God is here, you're here, and this is your friend who's far from God. If you will look for opportunities 
to share God's story. If you will listen to their story, if you will share how God came down to meet you, there's this triangle thing going on. And if you'll look for those opportunities, somewhere in the middle of that triangle, the Holy Spirit will put His stamp on your life and there'll be this divine intersection and God will do something that only God can do in your friend or your loved one. You can't win them to Christ. Only God's Spirit can do that. Jesus said, no one comes to me unless my Father draws him. So we're just supposed to do what we can do, which is listen to them, tell them about God, and tell them about my story. How hard is that? It's not that hard. We've just forgotten the stakes. Listen to their story and look for opportunities to share yours. Number three is look for opportunities to answer questions. Make yourself available to talk about anything. Now, you get to Acts chapter 8, and if you're reading through, you came to this passage, and it talks about an Ethiopian eunuch. And, man, try to explain that to your kids. Um, what's a eunuch? It's a dude with no genitals. What's a genital? Let's not even go there. I mean, right? I don't know why the Bible didn't just say it was an Ethiopian dude riding in a carriage, but it says an Ethiopian... The Bible's real, by the way. The Bible doesn't pull any punches. So if you're an Ethiopian eunuch, that's what it calls you. All right. Didn't need to go there, but Acts chapter 8, verse 27. Now, an Ethiopian eunuch, just skip right on that, don't get the image, who was an important official in charge of the treasury of the queen of Ethiopia was on his way home. He had been to Jerusalem to worship God and was going back home in his carriage. As he rode along, he was reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. The Holy Spirit said to Philip, one of the original 12, go over to that carriage and stay close to it. Philip ran over and heard him reading from the book of the prophet Isaiah. He asked him, do you understand what you're reading? The official replied, how can I understand unless someone explains it to me? And he invited Philip to climb up and sit in the carriage with him. Philip was available to explain everything to this guy. And what's going on around you is people are asking questions all the time. We're just so preoccupied with our lives that we don't recognize those as spiritual opportunities. People have questions. You don't have to have all the answers. Sometimes you just listen. Sometimes it's as easy as saying, hey, my preacher talked about that. If I get you a CD, would you listen? Then put all of it on me. By the way, it's really funny when some of y'all come up to me, and this happens a lot. Some of y'all come up and y'all go, man, my friend who's never been in church before is coming today. You better bring it. There's no pressure there. None whatsoever. That happens. It's happened more and more here lately. <laughs> I do what I can and then I ask God. Janie and I prayed last night that God would take this service and multiply it in your life to do things because we were talking, I was talking with the band right before church. No matter how much we practice, no matter how much I study or prepare, my human efforts can only get it here. God's size efforts are up there. And so every week I study and I try and I pray and I say, God, please take my human efforts and make something God-sized happen out of it. And when you come up to me, some of you come up after a service and you go, you were talking to me today. I said, no, that wasn't me. That was God. If you come, especially if you come and you've never been here before and you hear a word from God, praise God because it's not me. If the worship, if the team up here leads you in worship, these guys will be the first to tell you they're not perfect. They don't live perfect lies. Lives, lies. Maybe they do live perfect lies. Freudian slip, guys. Sorry, sorry. They'll tell you if God uses them, they're amazed over and over again. That's what God wants to do is use ordinary people to do extraordinary things. So look for opportunities and God will make sure you find them. Number four, look for God to do the impossible. 
All right, I've got to finish real quickly, so hang on. We're going to kick it into sixth gear. Acts 9.1, Saul kept on threatening to kill the Lord's followers. All right, you remember Saul? He's the one that's later called Paul. Now skip down to verse 20 in Acts chapter 9. And immediately he, Saul, began preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is indeed the Son of God. What happened in those 19 verses? He was killing Christians. 19 verses later, he's trying to convert people into Christians. What could possibly happen? Only God happened to him. See, you do what's possible and you expect God to do the impossible. It's what he's good at. It's his job description, doing the impossible. Read the Bible on every page. God does something impossible that people go, oh, there's just no way. Well, if God created the universe, if he suspended all of the things in space, if he created the the sun and the moon and the stars and the heavens, if he created all of the animals, if he created life and he separated light and day, uh, night and day, and he separated the the waters from the earth if he does all of that you think your life is too difficult for god maybe you don't know him or maybe you don't know the god of the bible because there is nothing too difficult for god so you begin praying for your friends and you say god and and actually this is what i'm doing i started praying at the beginning of this series that god would convert someone who is the hardest sinner around Because I want God to get the glory and I want people to go, what happened to you? And then then he gets to tell his story. Last one is look for opportunities to care for others. If you can remember the triangle, God's up here, your friend's here, you're here. You got their story, you listen. You got God's story. You got your story of how God came to you. The Holy Spirit's in the middle. If you will put love in there, you do what you can. You love that person. You do practical things for that person. You are available when no one else is available. God will make sure that there's this holy intersection of your life with theirs and something incredible will happen that that thousands of years from now, someone will walk up to you on the streets of heaven and say, it's because of you that I'm here. Some of you this morning, you're here today because someone loved you enough to invite you. They maybe didn't even know the story of God. They just said, I went someplace and they loved me there. Why don't you come check it out too? And some of you are now in the kingdom of God because somebody came up beside you when you were hurting and they invited you to this church. And you came and you said, well, that church is kind of weird. I'm kind of weird. I fit in here. I'm not weird by myself. I'm surrounded by weirdos. And somewhere along the line, God came into your life and you are forever changed because someone cared about you. And now it's your turn. There are people you can reach that I will never reach. There are people that will not come into this church because I invite them. The only way they'll ever come into this church is if you invite them. Most people that step on the property, the, the, the statistics tell us most people that come on a church property make up their minds in the first 10 minutes whether they're ever going to come back. I don't even get a shot in the first 10 minutes, but you do. So my question is, who you bring into the party? If you'll pray and ask God, I guarantee you we'll be pulling out chairs next week because there'll be so many people here. Because God wants to do something God-sized. 
I'm tired of doing things Doug-sized because it doesn't satisfy. And I just have this sneaking suspicion that a lot of you are tired of doing things in your power and you want to be in on something supernatural. Am I right? Me and Arthur. Arthur's the only one. We're going to take them. We're going to storm the gates of hell, Arthur. Me and you. <laughs> 